The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. August 4th, 2020, the March of the Morons continues. The Nordic Pineapple Bed and Breakfast in St. John's, Michigan, has been forced to take down its flag after multiple threats and hate messages. You're a bigot because you fly the Confederate flag. We started to have this concern that it was deterring people from coming to our bed and breakfast, that people would see it and make this judgment. The couple says they're proud of their heritage, but says it's not worth the frustration. Kirsten says they've received hate mail and phone calls ever since. What we're getting is so much more negative now. It's not just, hey, you're flying the Confederate flag. It's you should be ashamed to fly the Confederate flag. You're a bigot because you fly the Confederate flag. Kirsten says some people are even convinced her home was built by a Confederate leader. That's false. Michigan was not, in fact, a Confederate state. Well, maybe the Upper Peninsula was. I'll have to check on that. Uh, and Greg and Kirsten Offenbecker, owners of the Nordic Pineapple, were not flying the Confederate flag. They were flying the Norwegian flag. The clue is in the name, the Nordic Pineapple, bed and breakfast. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Offenbecker's forebears are Norwegian. The Confederate and Norwegian flags look nothing alike. One is an off-center cross, the other is a saltar. It's like the difference between St. George's flag and St. Andrew's flag uh, in the Union Jack. And apart from anything else, there are no stars in the Norwegian flag. As I said to Tucker a few weeks ago, a revolution of the truly gruntingly, moronically stupid is as terrifying as it gets. Would you really want to negotiate a peace treaty with someone who thinks the Norwegian flag is the Confederate flag? So in the America of 2020, you get emails saying you're a bigot, you get profanity-laced phone messages, and you have to think, are these guys who can't tell the difference between a Confederate and a Norwegian flag going to be content just to piss on us all over the internet and the telephone, or are we going to wake up? at three in the morning and find the mob outside setting the place alight. It's not enough to take the Norwegian Confederate flag off a Michigan bed and breakfast. We need to take the Norwegian Confederate flag off Norway, starting with the Norwegian embassy in Washington. You remember when Trump asked his aides why America got no immigrants from Norway, but only from all these bleephole countries? If that's not a Confederate dog whistle, I don't know what is. The summer of stupid. The March of the Morons. Do you know what those lyrics uh, we just heard mean? They're in uh, Norwegian, 
or possibly confederatees, but they translate as slay him. The Christian man's son has seduced the fairest maiden of the mountain king. Slay him! Slay him! Can I hack his fingers? Can I tear his hair? Can I bite him in the thigh? Shall he be boiled down to broth? Shall he be roasted on a spit? It would make a fabulous anthem for the next Antifa Chop Chaz BLM Autonomous Zone. Mexico now has the third highest number of COVID deaths in the world, but it's totally racist of you to think that open borders are anything to do with the sudden uptick in cases in American states such as Texas and Arizona. Uh, as I said months ago with the China coronavirus, I keep an eye on the hard death numbers. And that's also good advice in this revolutionary moment. The late George Floyd or George Michael, as the New York Times accidentally called him the other day. Seriously. A quote from the Times. This is America's newspaper of record. And by record, they mean careless whisper. Uh, because of an editing error, an earlier version of this article misidentified the given name of a man killed by the Minneapolis police this year. He was George Floyd, not Michael. Wake me up before you print print. When George Michael died before his time, at least hundreds of other lives weren't sacrificed with his. The Wall Street Journal reports that in America's 50 largest cities, homicides are up 24% so far this year. In 36 of those cities, murders are up by double digits. New York City has had more shootings in the first seven months of 2020 than in the whole of 2019. Chicago last month saw a 139% increase in murders compared to July 2019, which was quite high enough, thank you very much. You'd think they'd be running out of people to shoot. Portland in July had more killings than in any month for three decades. Daniel Greenfield at Front Page Magazine extrapolates from the statistics and reckons that the Black Lives Matter revolutionary moment has cost so far an extra 800 lives. 800 more dead Americans. Oh, it's not all just shootings. In Hartford, Connecticut, a black man called Jerry Thompson has been arrested for decapitating his white landlord. Hey, it works for statues. And as I said a few weeks back, it would be unreasonable, what with all the decapitation nightly on the news, to expect it to remain confined to statues. My old line is that you judge a society by how easy it is to insulate yourself from its worst pathologies. Right now, it's imprudent for an elderly lady to stroll New York streets in daylight, lest she be sucker-punched just for the fun of it. Policemen are ill-advised to go to a coffee shop because the livelier baristas are leaving mucus in there underneath all the whipped cream and sprinkles. The Biden-Trump polls are tightening very slightly. The Hansi man is now about seven and a half points ahead, uh, maybe heading down to seven. But the tightening is sufficient for big-time Dems to start penning thumb-sucking op-ed pieces saying Joe needs to take a principal stand and announce that he'll refuse to debate Trump because Trump is such a liar that you can't have a good faith debate with such a person. Uh-huh. Whatever works. To reprise another line of mine, uh, last time round the Trump campaign was all candidate and no handlers. 
the Biden campaign is all handlers, no candidate. The summer of stupid continues. Timber. It's Mark Stein's Statue of the Night. You put me high upon a pedestal So high that I could almost see eternity You needed me You needed me We no longer need Nubian princesses the Shelburne Hotel has stood on the north side of St Stephen's Green in Dublin for almost two centuries and has played its role in Irish history. The constitution of the Irish Free State was partly drafted in room 112 of the hotel. In 1867, it underwent an extensive remodelling, including the placement of four statues along the front by Mathurin Moreau. Having strolled past them uh, many times, I would say that those statues are what give the face of the Shelburne its distinction. Or they were. Dublin's Shelburne Hotel could face enforcement proceedings after four statues were apparently removed without planning permission from the listed building. The City Council is investigating the removal of the 153-year-old statues carried out because of their depiction of slaves in ancient Africa. Oh my, they're slaves? That's terrible! The statues feature Nubian slave girls holding torches and in manacles. Despite no complaint being made, the hotel owners, US investors Kennedy Wilson and the operators, Marriott International, reportedly agreed to remove the statues because of the depiction of slavery. That's outrageous. I thought the Irish were too busy being enslaved by the English to do any enslaving of their own. Here's Dr Eben Joseph, lecturer on equality, migration and race at University College Dublin, asking the $64,000 question. How can that be art? I'm saying that, how can that be art? Young girls that were taken, beaten, raped and abused, how in God's name is that art? How can that be art? I love the way Dr. Joseph, like all the best rent-a-quote types on telly and radio, sounds so professionally indignant. How in God's name can that be art? Well, the best way to answer that question, uh, Dr. Joseph, would have been to stroll along to St. Stephen's Green and take a look at the statues during the 153 years they were standing there. And you might have noticed that they don't look in the least as if they've been beaten, raped and abused. They're wearing what appears to be very fine, lavish clothing. And the so-called manacles round their ankles are actually gold and look no more like manacles than that NASCAR guy's garage door opener looked like a noose. Art historians have now uncovered evidence that none of the four statues depicted enslaved women. I'm joined to discuss this by art historian and associate lecturer at the University of London, Kyle Layden. They were four princesses from the Egyptian region who expressed something about the luxury of the hotel inside that was wearing a royal Egyptian headdress, which would indicate that it was a princess. 
The Shelburne statue is clothed in expensive striped silk and wears a golden headband. It suffices to say that you have established fairly conclusively that the artist's motivation when designing these was not to depict slaves, but to depict princesses. Okay, okay, but what about those manacles? Ah, well, no. They're gold, that's the first clue, Uh, because they're ankle bracelets, like the one Groucho Marx bought in the 70s for his last girlfriend, inscribed with the words, Heavens Above. Professor Layden again. Uh, These were intended to be read as indicators of high social status, as opposed to shackles. Princesses, not slaves. Bangles, not manacles. So the Black Studies professor, Dr Eben Joseph, who was born in Nigeria, is so uninterested in studying blacks from Africa that she can't tell the difference between high-born black princesses and slaves. So she's now demanding that statues showing black women as high-ranking, important and wealthy, have to be torn down. Not so long ago, the Irish position on downtrodden blacks was relatively simple. Do you not get it, lads? The Irish are the blacks of Europe, and Dubliners are the blacks of Ireland, and the Northside Dubliners are the blacks of Dublin. So say it once, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. That's from the 1991 film The Commitments, directed by Sir Alan Parker, who died just a couple of days ago. And if the Irish are indeed the blacks of Europe, then the Shelburne, as I said, has played its part in Irish history, which is why one of those statues is a little pockmarked from bullets that hit it during the 1916 Easter Rising. And yet through all the turbulence of the last century and a half, those statues survived until an American cultural imperialist called William J. McMorrow, chairman of Kennedy Wilson, decided to commit an act of Philistine vandalism and butcher the front of a listed building. Frank MacDonald makes an important point here. Because the hotel is owned by an American company and run by an American company, that they've imposed American cancel culture on Dublin. Mr MacDonald is right. All countries have ethno-racial issues of their own. But as we've seen in Australia with coon cheese and now in Ireland with the illegal removal of these historic statues, the Black Lives Matter frenzy is the imperialist imposition of a uniquely American race prism on the entire planet. Screw that! Are my fellow Irish really such pitiful pussies that they're going to take this? You threw off the tyranny of the English to prostrate yourself before William J. McMorrow, Kennedy Wilson and Marriott International, whose hotels are crap? Remember the Easter Rising? Remember how that Nubian princess took a bullet for you guys and chased Marriott and its crap hostelries out of the Emerald Isle entirely? I've stayed at the Shelburne many times, but I'm not going to be doing so until those statues go back up. After two successful and sold-out voyages, the Mark Stein Cruise is back. 
While the cruise industry has had to take a pause this year, we know good things come to those who wait, and next year's Mark Stein Cruise will be no exception. By then, this new normal will be back to the old normal, or perhaps the new old normal, but with even more appreciation for the camaraderie, fun, and entertainment that we've enjoyed in years past. In October 2021, we'll be setting sail from Rome for a Mediterranean voyage that will take us to amazing ports in Spain, France, Italy, Monaco and Gibraltar on Holland America's new state-of-the-art ship, MS New Stottendam. We invite you to join Mark Stein and his special guests, including Douglas Murray, Michelle Bachman, and John O'Sullivan for 10 days of relaxation, revelry, and review aboard the Mark Stein Cruise 2021. Book your stateroom now by going to www.marksteincruise.com or calling the Cruise and Vacation Authority at 1-844-340-3350. That's www.marksteincruise.com or 1-844-340-3350. We look forward to seeing you aboard. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Italy gets out of Albania, President Wilson says stop to Western Union, and Charlie Chaplin gets divorced. It's August 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. You can win the war, but you can't always afford the spoils of victory. The Paris Peace Conference carved up Albania between Italy, Greece and the new kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, Yugoslavia. But Rome has decided it is too financially straitened to maintain its presence there, except on the island of Sassino, facing increasing local hostility. The Kingdom of Italy has abandoned its Albanian protectorate. He went in like a lion, a wild, raging lion. And when he got inside, he slammed the door. He said, well, here I am, and I don't give a continental. Then he gave an awful roar. Ructions in the House of Commons at Westminster following overwhelming support for the government's Restoration of Order in Ireland bill, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, Joseph Devlin, yelled out to his fellow members, I hate, loathe and despise you all. Following a ruling that this was unparliamentary, Mr Devlin was ordered from the chamber. I won't go, he declared. The sergeant-at-arms was dispatched in his breeches and silk stockings to evict him. But Mr Devlin shouted, bring on your army of occupation before eventually agreeing to depart. In related news, the most prominent voice of the Irish community in Australia, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne, Daniel Mannix, has been taken into custody while the RMS Baltic was in port on the Lancashire coast. He was removed to Penzance, where he had no desire to go. The Archbishop has been told that he is technically under arrest, but is free to move around as long as he does not set foot in Ireland or in English cities with large Irish populations, such as Liverpool and Manchester. From Ireland to India... 
On the very day of the death of Bal Gangadhar Tilak, the first leader of the Indian self-rule movement, the man regarded as his successor, the former Middle Temple barrister Mohandas K. Gandhi, inaugurated the first stage of his non-cooperation strategy with the King Emperor's government by returning all honours conferred on him by the Crown, including the Queen South Africa medal he earned as leader of a group of stretcher-bearers in the Natal Indian Ambulance Corps during the Boer War. Successive stages of non-cooperation, Mr Gandhi has promised, include the resignation of Hindus and Muslims from government jobs and the military, and a refusal to pay taxes. In the United States... Lige Daniels, a 16-year-old Negro, was being held at the Shelby County Jail in Center, Texas, for the murder of a 45-year-old white woman. The sheriff, obliged to be out of town but aware of local feelings, took the keys with him. But a mob of more than a thousand men broke into the courthouse and battered down the steel doors of the jail. They then hanged Lige Daniels from an oak tree in front of the building. In New York, an estimated 25,000 people packed Madison Square Garden for the first international meeting of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Gorgeously garbed in an ornate robe of purple, gold and green, the association's president, Marcus Garvey, told the crowd that, quote, the hour has come for the 400 million Negroes to claim Africa as their home. Africa shall be the home of the black peoples of the earth. We pledge our sacred blood on the fields of Africa for our liberty and our freedom. The attendees have proclaimed Mr. Garvey the provisional president of Africa. But do they know him over there? What shall will they know me? The conference has also authorised Mr. Garvey to set up a government in exile for the entire continent. Radium treatment will be provided to cancer patients free of charge in a programme to begin later this year at the Clinic of the American Association for Cancer Research in Buffalo, New York. President Wilson has ordered destroyers of the United States Navy to block the laying of a Western Union telegraphic cable that would have connected Miami to Barbados. Two admirals and a U.S. Army colonel boarded the British cable-laying ship, the Colonia and ordered it out of American waters. Not all British vessels are so uncongenial to Mr. Wilson. The President has proclaimed this coming December the 21st to be Pilgrim's Day to celebrate the 300th anniversary of the landing of the Mayflower in America. Just take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. There's no little brother there who always squeals. You can say an awful lot in seven reels. Take your lesson at the movies and have love scenes of your own. 
Lots of girlies would like to be in the movies, but few have had the success of Mildred Harris, who at the age of 15 made a memorable harem girl in D.W. Griffith's picture Intolerance. Now 18 years old, Miss Harris has filed for divorce from the world-famous comedian Charlie Chaplin after less than two years of marriage. Their only child, a boy called Norman, died three days after birth, and Mr. Chaplin is said to have been living at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. Miss Harris accuses her husband of extreme mental cruelty and bodily injury, while Mr. Chaplin complains that his wife has become unusually close to another motion picture player, rumoured to be the Russian actress Anna Nazimova, notorious for her debauched parties at her Sunset Boulevard home, The Garden of Allah. In other movie news, the Daredevil stunt pilot Orma Locklear seems set for a career as a bona fide star of the Flickers following his debut in The Great Air Robbery. But during a climactic dive for his forthcoming picture, The Skywayman, the lighting crew are reported to have failed to douse the large studio arc lights. And Mr. Locklear was so blinded by the brightness that he lost control of his Curtis Jenny biplane and flew it straight into the sludge pool of an oil well, to the shock of the film crew and many spectators. Mr. Locklear and his co-pilot Skeets Elliott were killed instantly. The Fox Film Corporation is rumoured to be considering keeping the scene in the picture as an appropriately dramatic finale to Orma Locklear's short career. He was 28. The former Indiana governor... And Tarlis anti-alcohol campaigner Frank Hanley has been killed along with two colleagues in a train collision near Denison, Ohio. Mr. Hanley's car crossed a double set of railroad tracks, was hit by one train, which pushed the vehicle onto the other track and into the path of a train coming in the opposite direction. The Prohibition Party's candidate for president in the 1916 election, Frank Hanley, was 57. And that's the way of the world, August 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Robert Fox, a first weekend founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Iowa, writes with reference to my column on the centenary of P.D. James and her splendid novel, The Children of Men. Uh, while reading this essay, my thoughts turn to things like, I wonder what the children of Antifa, Chop and BLM will be like in a generation. If the Morons who are marching today are fortunate enough to have children, what will family life be like? How will today's Morons be able to instill discipline and structure when they themselves are void of discipline and structure today? I wonder if they ever consider the state of things a generation from now. Probably not. As Mark explains in this piece, when history is erased, the future has little to hang its hat on. Maybe it's time to remake the movie with a more contemporary flavour. Well, Robert, I'm not sure we'll really have to worry about the children of CHOP. Those so-called protesting moms on the streets of Portland are mostly non-moms, even the few cis-moms among them. Um, to return to P.D. James's thesis, statistically speaking, we are societies that, while still technically capable of re reproducing, choose not to. Demographically, 
Uh, as I pointed out, in America alone, no society in human history has ever recovered from fertility rates as collapsed as Germany's or Greece's. The only difference uh, since I wrote that book is that America has now joined uh, that demographic death spiral. So we are in a time of accelerating societal transformation. Both the left and the right uh, talk about the end of the white majority in the United States. The only difference is that when the left do it, they're gleeful, and when the right do it, they're racist and aren't supposed even to mention it. The Associated Press, June 25th, June 25th, so this is what, uh, six weeks ago? Opening paragraph. For the generation of Americans not yet old enough to drive, the demographic future has arrived. For the first time, non-whites and Hispanics were a majority of people under age 16 in 2019. An expected demographic shift that will grow over the coming decades, according to figures released by the US Census Bureau on Thursday. We are browning from bottom up in our age structure, said William Fry, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Now, if Trump or Steve Bannon or I were to talk like that, it would be a hate crime. Um, but it's OK for the Associated Press to do it. Uh, but here's the point. My line in America alone, which I probably should have put on a T-shirt, was the future belongs to those who show up for it. Well, if you're under 16 and you look around your classroom, assuming Doc Fauci ever lets you return to school, that future has already shown up. If you take all the current trends, white women on the streets for Black Lives Matter, uh, transmania, Islamic conversion rates in Europe, the diversity fevers of middle school, all are simply a recognition by the young that for their parents' world, the jig is up. And it's a natural thing to want to be on the side of the future. And the future isn't Winston Churchill or the Founding Fathers. Watch how people behave. Uh, the COVID compliance, the new normal, is a sign of a fearful, risk-averse elderly society that knows it's on its way out and doesn't want to take the chance of a sudden bad fall. But likewise, the recklessness of the young transitioners. Hey, mom and dad's world is over. Who knows what's coming next? So why not pump yourself full of hormones, grow some pert breasts, but keep your wedding tackle? Who knows what's going to fly the day after tomorrow? All we know is that uh, this society is on its way out. I've been uh, reusing a lot of old lines on today's show, so here's another. As a kid, whenever I watched futuristic sci-fi movies where they're all walking around like zombies in identikit clothing under an all-powerful state, they always bored me because what interested me was how we got from here to there, the transitioning stage, so to speak. Uh, well, we are in the transitioning stage. Uh, we've abolished national identity. We've abolished sex and sex roles. We are societally transitioning at a speed that no other society has attempted in human history. We are on the path from here to there and going much faster than you think. And now, Stein Online presents... Mark Stein's Song of the Week. 
A fortnight ago, Annie Ross died, just four days before what would have been her 90th birthday. She had an amazing life. Her parents were Scottish musical comedians, Short and Dalsey. And her brother, Jimmy Logan, became a big Scots entertainer. On the bunny banks of Clyde Roman in the gloaming Way my lassie by my side And her other brother Buddy Wasn't a bad vocalist You're the end of the rainbow My pots of gold You're daddy's little girl To have and hold Nor little sister Heather And when Annie Ross was four, the family went steerage to New York to try and break into American show business. That didn't work out, and so they all headed back to Britain, except for Annie, who stayed on with her aunt, Ella Logan. Who's Ella Logan? Well, she was a Broadway actress, uh, the star of Finian's Rainbow, in fact. It's that old devil moon that you stole from the sky. It's that old devil moon in your eyes. Auntie Ella and her niece moved to Los Angeles, and at the age of seven, Annie was on the big screen with the Little Rascals in Our Gang Follies of 1938. Pretty wild for a seven-year-old. In fact, that's basically Annie Ross's entire life and career in one number. It starts off as very conventionally Scottish and thistled and kilted, and then gets jazzier and more and more abandoned. Aunt Ella wasn't so impressed and told her she was never going to make it as a singer, and if she wanted to be in showbiz, she should try set designing. Thank you, Auntie. Still and all, A Little Rascal's movie is not a bad break for a kid off the boat from Scotland. Annie Ross was never really a working actress, but directors liked her, so every few years someone put her in a picture. She was Judy Garland's little sister in Presenting Lily Mars, and half a century later she was with Robert Downey Jr., Julianne Moore, Chris Penn, Francis McDormand, Lyle Lovett, Andy McDowell in Robert Altman's Shortcuts. In between you can catch her in Yanks with Richard Gere, Throw Mama from the Train, uh, Superman 3. But as I said, acting wasn't 
what Annie Ross did. What she did was become one third of Lambert, Hendrix and Ross. The hottest new group in jazz, as one album title put it, a little immodestly, but not inaccurately. Very cool as she was for a while. Annie Ross had an affair with Lenny Bruce and a child with the drummer Kenny Clark, who was black, which in those days in America was daring and problematic. And she became a heroin addict, as a lot of that generation of jazzers did, and then she got over that with some effort, which was impressive. Speaking of problematic, I occasionally used to wonder what the hip star of vocalese sang with mum and dad and brother Jimmy when she was back in Scotland with the family. A medley of Roman in the Gloaming and Basie's One O'Clock Jump? Or did they just let Annie take another wild chorus on Loch Lomond? and then all go out to score some heroin for Lenny Bruce. But Robert Altman and Ella Logan and Lenny Bruce aren't really relevant to this particular spot on our show because our Song of the Week is about songs and songwriters. And every so often, Annie Ross did write a song. Here she is with Hugh Hefner on his Playboy's Penthouse TV show. Everybody's uh, doing little bits and pieces. Uh, how about uh, you want a solo song for us? Maybe. Oh, all right. Would you? Can I do something I wrote? Love to have you do something you wrote. All right. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody goes to analysts nowadays. Well, about five years ago, I wrote a thing about going to an analyst and finding out that it wasn't really too bad when you discover that you've got two heads. <laughs> Singing with Count Basie and his rhythm section, and with Tony Bennett, Joe Williams, and all kinds of other groovers looking on in admiration. My was told that I was right out of my head when he described it. He said I'd be dead or dead alive. I didn't listen to his jive. I knew all along he was all wrong and that he thought I was crazy, but I'm not. That's Tony Bennett and Joe Williams joining in on the Oh No's. You can hear Basie's enjoying that song. Annie Ross uh, singing Twisted, her lyric to an instrumental by the saxophonist Wardell Gray from a few years earlier. That's not anybody's idea of a number you'd write if you wanted to have a big hit. Uh, yet it wound up making Miss Ross a lot of money because uh, some younger singers liked it. Here's Joni Mitchell singing Annie Ross on her blockbuster of an album from the 70s, Caught and Spark. They all have been angry young men. They all have been Edison and also at Einstein. So why should I feel sorry if they just couldn't understand the idiomatic logic that went on in my head? I had a brain, it was insane, oh, they used to laugh at me when I refused to ride on all those double-decker buses, all because there was no driver on the top. There was no driver on the top. Chickens twisted, crazy, oop, shooby, here, flip city. My analyst told me 
that I was right out of my head. But I said, dear doctor, I think that it's you instead. Because I have got a thing that's unique and new to prove that I'll have the last laugh on you. Because instead of one head, I got two. And you know, two heads are better than one. Joni Mitchell singing of a double-decker buses. Uh, next, it'll be I Belong to Glasgow. Uh, I believe that's the first time Joni Mitchell a hugely successful songwriter in her own right, ever recorded somebody else's song. And because all the hippie chicks and the rock chicks and the folk rock chicks dig Joni, they all know that Annie Ross song, and a lot of them do it in their Joni Mitchell tribute shows, thinking it's one of Joni's. Twisted is all very well, uh, but it's not my favourite Annie Ross song. This is from a decade before Twisted, and it's just completely untwisted and very charming. Annie Ross was 14 years old and she entered a songwriting competition and Johnny Mercer liked her entry enough to make a record of it with the Pied Pipers. Let's fly, baby, let's fly away to land strange and unknown where love's free and there's no such thing as a mailman doorbell telephone let's fly baby let's fly away across tropical seas we'll have fun underneath the sun so come on baby please now you Let's fly, baby, let's fly away, take off, head for the sky. We'll leave all of our blues behind, so come on, baby, let's fly. And you'll know just how far we two can go. That's a very worldly lyric for a 14-year-old. Uh, like Come Fly With Me which uh, Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn wrote for Frank Sinatra. But Annie Ross got there a decade earlier, and she was about a sixth or seventh of their combined ages. Lovely, blithe lyric by Annie. Lovely tune by Dave Ball. Lovely record by Johnny Mercer, the Pied Pipers, and Paul Weston. The Royal Bobsters, who are in part uh, an Annie Ross tribute group, uh, sort of tied it all together. Let's fly, come fly with me, and even a quotation from Twisted. Let's fly, let's baby, let's fly away. Take off, head for the sky. We're gonna leave all of our blues behind. So come on, baby, let's fly. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. We'll take a lunar honeymoon where we can spoon in the merry month of June. Won't you listen while I croon? This tune is never too soon. Now they say all his children are supposed to sleep tight. But I'd rather sail upon the sultry seas with you tonight. Let's take off on a fabulous flight. We might just find our delight. 
It's clever, and I get what they're trying to do, but I prefer the straightforwardness of uh, the Johnny Mercer treatment. I saw Annie Ross on stage many times over the years on both sides of the Atlantic. As singers get older, you'll hear a uh, long-time fan say, oh, her voice is shot, by which they mean the range has narrowed a little, or they can't sustain long notes uh, quite as long as they used to. So they've got to prowl around the number a little more cunningly. Uh, but the last couple of times I saw Annie Ross, I have never heard a voice more comprehensively shot. I mean, there was nothing there. Uh, no tone, no range, no breath, all completely drained by a lifetime of booze and cigarettes not to mention those years on the harder stuff. But nobody cared because she had a point of view on the material and she could convince you she'd lived those songs. Jazz likes survivors to the point where surviving becomes the only point. But I love the thought of a 14-year-old girl living with a showbiz aunt she didn't get on with, writing a breezy airborne love song for a competition and getting Johnny Mercer to record it. And I wish he'd talked her into writing a few more like this one. Let's fly, baby, let's fly away to land strange and unknown Where love's free and there's no such thing as a mailman doorbell telephone Let's fly, baby, let's fly away Cross tropical seas We'll have fun underneath the sun So come on, baby, please You will find peace of mind and you know just how far we two can go. Let's fly! Baby, let's fly away. Get lost! Never return. Let's fly, baby, let's fly away. Come on and pack and not come back. Goodbye. has flown. A great character. I'll miss her. That'll do it for our show. I'll be back this evening with the latest episode in our new Tale for Our Time, my contemporary inversion of The Prisoner of Zender, The Prisoner of Windsor. Thank you for your many kind comments on this summer diversion. Tom Carey, a Stein clubber from the Carolinas, says, I love it. Superbly written, superbly read, and hilariously funny. Too kind, Tom. But do join me for that later. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.